so when I did my uh, rehearsal, my preparation for the reading this morning, uh, I uh, had a flash of recognition. And for those of us that were here in 2009, you'll remember the uh, blockbuster musical, Pua's Midwife Crisis. And we have uh, the Sun King himself is here uh, this morning, Don Gustafson, who was remarkable in that role. And uh, it was a wonderful musical written by Cheryl Goodman Morris and, uh, and uh, Carol Russell, Karen Russell. So I just wanted to remember that because I, I know this story. So, uh, uh, so it's from Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. These are the names of the Israelites who came to Egypt with Jacob along with their households, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Isaacar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The total number in Jacob's family was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Eventually, Joseph, his brothers, and everyone in his generation died. But the Israelites were fertile and became, and became populous. They multiplied and grew drama dramatically, filling the whole land. Now a new king came to power in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. He said to his people, the Israelite people are now larger in number and stronger than we are. Come on, let's be smart and deal with them. Otherwise, they will only grow in number. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and then escape from the land. As a result, the Egyptians put foremen of forced work gangs over the Israelites to harass them with hard work. They had to build storage cities named Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they grew and spread, so much so that the Egyptians started to look at the Israelites with disgust and dread. So the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. They made their lives miserable with hard labor, making mortar and bricks, doing field work, and by forcing them to do all kinds of other cruel work. The king of Egypt spoke to two Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Pua. When you are helping the Hebrew woman give birth and you see the baby being born, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, you can let her live. Now the two midwives respected God, so they didn't obey the Egyptian king's order. Instead, they let the baby boys live. So the king of Egypt called the, called the two midwives and said to them, why are you doing this? Why are you letting the baby boys live? The two midwives said to Pharaoh, because Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They're much stronger and give birth before any midwives can get to them. <laughs> so God treated the midwives well, and the people kept on multiplying and became very strong. And because the midwives respected God, God gave them households of their own. Then Pharaoh gave an order to all his people, throw every baby boy born to the Hebrews into the Nile River, but you can let all the girls live. For the word of God of scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. So uh, as many of you know, I didn't grow up Presbyterian, and I also grew up here out on the West Coast in the Bay Area, uh, but there's like a whole world of Presbyterians out there, the Midwest and the East Coast and in the South, um, and it's a whole different <laughs> constellation of people, and lucky me, I ended up in the best clergy group in the country um, called Lectio 
Yubilate, Lectio Yubilate, and we uh, get together once a year. You've heard me speak of them several times, I'm sure. And I also landed in this group with uh, the Reverend Dr. Lee Hinton Hasty. And if you know Lee, you're in on all the rest of the Presbyterians. <laughs> and so uh, he's been a great uh, connector to me of the breadth of our larger denomination and what's happening, and also just such a dear friend. But he is the senior director of theological, the Theological Education Fund for the Committee on Theological Education for the Presbyterian Church USA um, for our General Assembly, which is beginning to meet this week um, in their every other year meeting. So we're holding them in our prayers. Uh, during uh, the pandemic at the beginning, he began to host a podcast called Leading Theologically, which is a really excellent series of conversations with leaders in the church. He's married to uh, Dr. Elizabeth Hinson Hasty, who's a professor of theology in, at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky, and has two kids named Garrison and Emmy. So we both have youngest daughters named Emmy. And he's also a field hockey referee. Emmy also plays field hockey. So that's if you really want to get him talking, talk about field hockey. <laughs> But he is also just one of my dearest friends, biggest encouragers, and um, I, one of my favorite things in the world is bringing people I love into the same room who don't know each other. So I'm really excited to have Lee here with us today and preaching. So would you join me in welcoming Lee? That's something Jennifer and I have in common. We love to bring people together who don't know each other, who all of a sudden become friends. And I hope I will become your friend today, too. It's so good to see you. The welcome I received, uh, starting outside, Christine, I think, and others around the coffee station. And let me just say, Chris and Emmy and Audra and Jenny gave me a big uh, hug welcome, you, I can assure you, um, in the last uh, 24 hours. And I'm just grateful to you and your community to be here. I do believe, uh, as a community, God has something to say to us um, about midwifing hope through the second book of the Bible that we call Exodus. And so I'd like for you to join me in prayer, continue in prayer, as we pray for God's help to discern what God is calling to do us to do next through Exodus chapter 1. Let us pray. Yesu, Yesu, fill us with your love. Show us how to serve the neighbors we have from you. And all God's people said, amen. On Freedom's Eve, or the eve of January 1st, 1863, Jenny mentioned earlier the first watch night services were taking place all across the United States, enslaved and free African Americans gathered in churches and their homes all across the country, awaiting the news of that Emancipation Proclamation that had taken effect. At the stroke of midnight, prayers were answered as all enslaved people in Confederate states were declared legally free. Union soldiers, many of whom were black, marched into the plantations across the cities of the South, reading small copies that they carried with them of the Emancipation Proclamation, spreading the news of the freedom. 
Only through the 13th Amendment did the emancipation end slavery throughout the United States. But not for everyone in the Confederate territory would get that freedom then. Even though Emancipation Proclamation was made effective in 1863, it was not implemented in those Confederate states uh, that are being controlled for two more years. As a result, the westernmost Confederate state of Texas enslaved people who would not be free until much later. Freedom finally came June 19th, June 19th, 1865, when some 2,000 Union troops arrived in Galveston Bay, Texas. The Army announced that more than 250,000 enslaved black people in the state were free by executive decree. This came to be known as Juneteenth, as been mentioned before, for the newly, for the newly freed people in Texas. In that post-emancipation period, known as the Reconstruction, 1865 to 1877, there was great hope, but also uncertainty and struggle as for the nation as a whole. That may sound familiar to, do, to you. Formerly enslaved people immediately sought to reunify with their families, establish schools, run for political office, push a radical legislation, and even sue, sue slaveholders for compensation. Juneteenth marks our country's, what some say is a second Independence Day. Although it's been long celebrated with African Americans in the community, it's more recent and new for many of us, but it is one that we truly can celebrate. It is a historical legacy that shows the value of never giving up on hope in uncertain and difficult times. That's what my sermon is about today, on this Juneteenth and this Father's Day, about never giving up on hope in uncertain times, about remembering stories of love and justice, freedom and deliverance around the world, about midwifing hope even in 2022, because there is clearly, clearly, if you haven't noticed, work to do, places where refugees wait for years and sometimes lifetimes for passage to a safe place to live, where those born into poverty and little, the little that it affords uh, do not have term, have health care. I was speaking with someone about that earlier. Shelter, education, and job security. Those who are misplaced by wars that they have nothing to do with because they were, because they are, they were just there, like the one that is happening now in the Ukraine. The people Israel were in a similar circumstance as our passage today. They were. Their very name, Israel, you may know, literally means wrestles with God or in the struggle. They were struggling in our story of Egypt, but it was not a mere inconvenience, not something they chose. It was because they were enslaved by Egypt, and it was getting worse. The literal meaning of Egypt, do you know it? Mitzrayim, the original Hebrew, it means double straits. It's a reference to the upper and lower straits of the territory that forms Egypt. As Lisa Marie Belts has written, Mitzrayim is a narrow place, an oppressive confinement, a tight spot, a snare, you might say. Like in Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus being faced with Scala, the rock, the cliff-dwelling monster, and Charybdis, a hard place, a treacherous whirlpool. Odysseus was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Do you ever feel like that? A difficult place with no apparent way out? That's sometimes the way I feel. Way out, though, that's what Exodus means. That's why Exodus is important to read today. I think even here in this very first chapter in Exodus that we're reading today, 
we can see a little bit of a hint of Israel's way out of Egypt, out of the double straits toward the, pl the promised land of Canaan. The rock on the one side, yes, was slavery, and on the other side, a hard place, the treacherous and long journey through the wilderness and the desert. And you may remember in that story, repeatedly we'll hear a story of them finding a way out of no way, deliverance from tight places, liberation from the narrow strait. Plagues come first to torture the land, but Israel escapes harm, right? Um, and then in Exodus 14, uh, the people of Israel are on the run from their oppressors, the Egyptians, and they come to the Sea of Reeds, or sometimes we call the Red Sea, and what happens? They're able to part the sea to find a way through, a way out of no way, and that sea comes back over the Egyptians, and then they're out in the wilderness, and they're, hunger, they're hungry, and they're complaining, and they're thirsty, Ryan, and they're trying to find an answer. What is that answer but quail and manna that shows up God's provision, another way out? Daniel Grudy, a theologian, has noted that Israel, see, is not only delivered from geographic places and physical kind of circumstance, but also from narrow ways of thinking. Specifically, God delivered Israel from a place of slavery and what he calls an empire mentality. You may know Brian Stevenson. He's somebody I have learned a lot about who knows about tight places, narrow ways of thinking, empire mentality that keeps the privileged powerful. Stevenson founded the Equal Justice Initiative and wrote about it in a best-selling book maybe some of you have read, Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption. Or maybe you saw the movie too, if you haven't, it's a great one. The story centers on the unjust conviction in 1998, in 1988 of Walter McMillan in Alabama. McMillan, after only a day and a half trial where three black witnesses gave alibis for McMillan and they were ignored by the jury, was sentenced to life in prison. And in Alabama, the, at that time, elected trial judges, judges were able to authorize those sentences and make a life verdict, a death penalty verdict, and that's exactly what the judge, you won't believe his name, but it's true, Robert E. Lee Key sentenced McMillan to death by electrocution. Stevenson shows up post-conviction as his attorney. He's able to prove to the state that the witnesses had lied on the stand, that the prosecution had illegally suppressed exculpatory evidence, and that McMillan's conviction was then overturned. Thanks be to God, in 1993, in the work of Brian Stevenson and his colleagues after six years in a cell on death row. Upon realizing all the unjust convictions, excessive and unfair sentences, uh, abuse of incarcerated and the mentally ill, not to mention the needs of all their families and children across the country, one character in the book muses about why the work of the East Equal Justice Initiative is so important. They said, when I first learned about all this, it was like looking at a river full of drowning people, not having any way of helping them out. That's why the Equal Justice Initiative was founded to save those unjustly condemned who were drowning in the justice and penal system one life at a time. Now, I know life's are, life is tough right now when we look across the news and in our own personal lives, and it may get tougher if it isn't COVID or the war in the Ukraine or the economy. Um, it's something else, but I am here to say don't lose hope. 
hope and deliverance are upon us. They happen in our days. Freedom from the double and triple and quadruple straits, narrows navigated by God's grace, mercy, justice, and truth, and the generosity of others. The divine deliverance theme is just beginning here in the book of Exodus, chapter 1. Grace, justice, mercy, truth, generosity, hope, all embodied. Who embodies that hope in that passage? Is it uh, who's going to stand up to that crushing power of the Egyptian army? Will it be Israel's army? No. Will it be the army or someone from another country? No. The help comes from someone who knows how to navigate narrow places and new life. The Hebrew midwives, the ones who deliver babies, they knew how to get out of tight spots, right? In a literal and biological sense. Their job was to help pregnant women give birth. A story of the story, uh, it's the second story really of creation, I think. In Genesis, we get the story of creation with God's spirit, God's ruach moving over the waters of chaos, forming them into land and sky and sea and creeping and flying creatures of every kind. And in this second book, in Exodus, it begins in a similar way, a story of coming alive through the amniotic fluid of birth and the cunning resistance, quick wit, and courageous allegiance. Don't miss that to God first and no other, even under the threat of death. Of death. So as we read those first books, verses of Exodus, the people of Israel were told they're in the double straits. But there they were multiplying and growing. And as they grew, they were enslaved. And most Egyptians and their king called Pharaoh kept oppressing them. I say most Egyptians because the latest biblical scholarship suggests that the midwives, Shifra and Puah, I don't know how the musical goes, but the late, the, they were not necessarily Egyptian or at least not Israelite. They were not so much Hebrew midwives or midwives who were Hebrew or of Israel, they were midwives to the Hebrews. Their names are actually Semitic. Midwives are actually usually of a lower class than the ones they serve, which could point to them maybe being Hebrew, but probably not. However, these women have power too. They have access to multiple conversations with Pharaoh. Did you notice that? Something Hebrews would have not have had. And Pharaoh trusted them to do what he asked them to do, to do this death-dealing mission, something that Hebrew women probably would not have done. And notice, these midwives could comment on the birthing process. They use that as part of their story that you laughed at. They could, they could comment on that. That's not something that Hebrew people of Israel would have talked about between men and women especially. Even more convincing is the way their respect or fear of God um, instead of Pharaoh's, presented as a surprise. Hebrew midwives would have respected God. For Egyptians or others around, Pharaoh was their living God. So what would a translation in, of understanding the midwives as not Hebrew mean for us today? Why would I even talk about that? Well, maybe they're allies to God and Israel. And if they are, then people who have privileges like they had, people of privilege can be a part of God's liberation project. God's freeing people to new life. You see, people of privilege, people who have 
access to power, whatever that may be. Maybe it's just a little bit. Maybe you're one of those like me. I bet you are. We, too, can be a part of God's liberation project today. We probably have been a part. We can continue to be a part of that project. God's way out of no way between the rock and the hard place, divine deliverance from the double straits. In verse 19, Shiphrah and Puah report to Pharaoh their reason why the baby boys uh, he wants to be killed are being bored. Quote, because Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, right? These midwives exploit Pharaoh's assumptions about difference. He assumes that the birth of a Hebrew boy threatens Egypt in the way that a birth of a Hebrew girl does not. He is sorely mistaken about the power of women, starting with the two women standing right in front of him, who appear to have no power. I think you know who is greater and wiser and more powerful in this story. A Hebrew word describing the pregnant Hebrew women, Shaddai, usually translated as stronger or vigorous, it has in its root the word life or lively. The Hebrew women, see, they were coming alive. They were about giving life because that's what the world and God needs is people who are coming alive. Pharaoh, he's death dealing, but these midwives and the mothers that they were serving, you, you know what? They were committed to life. This is a story of ordinary women who use the privilege they have, which is not much in their day, to act courageously by defying authorities and even breaking the law and customs to do what they believe and they knew was right according to God. It's a difficult story. It's a story, of, though, of faithful and fruitful civil disobedience even in favor of following God above any other authority. It's a reminder that authorities in our lives and in the world, they're not the final authority. And notice, they hatched and implemented this plan in collaboration to be loyal to God. They did not act alone. They checked with each other's better instinct to fear and respect God before any other and then took the action. The best discernment is done in community. Like we're gathered here today, not alone. They were partners David Dubay, the author of Civil Disobedience and Antiquity, calls the story of Shiphrah and Puah the oldest record of civil disobedience in world literature. These midwives, you see, set the stage for more stories of liberation and resistance, of claiming primarily allegiance to God instead of Pharaoh or anything else. Not only does the resistance of the Egyptian midwives to the Hebrews allow Moses to be born, which, by the way, happens in Exodus chapter 2, verse 1, it gives new life to God's faithful people going forward where they couldn't even see. My faithful friend and singer-songwriter, Presbyterian pastor's kid, now adult, you'll love his music if you haven't listened to it sometime. Uh, his name is David Lamont. He sings and says this about hope. Hope is courage you choose. I think he must know a little bit of Hebrew because Hebrew is a verb, not a noun. It's an action and a state of being, not a person, place, or thing. Hope is something humans animate. It's something we embody. It's more a journey than a destination. It's, a, it's the way Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice in Initiative reverse injustice done unto the unjustly convicted. Hope 
is midwifing and empowering the next generation of leaders under threat, Moses and all the others, even those here in 2022. It's a be, being an ally those, with those who clearly see where God is calling us next. All of these acts of hope, though, they require a choice, a courageous choice, choosing God and neighbors, not the storehouses of Pharaoh that they were building, by the way, if you remember, and empires, even personal storehouses then or now. It's not about saving for some unknown future in some building far away. It's about, or some possible calamity about that might happen, but investing in what God is doing right here, right now. I like the way professor of Christian ethics and Emory University professor um, uh, Elinott Marshall describes hope in the opening page of her 2006 book, Though the Fig Tree Does Not Blossom, Toward a Responsible Theology of Christian Hope. She says this, hope, hope has a job to do. Hope is important not to encourage, not to engage critically and practice intentionally, it's too important not to engage critically and practice intentionally. Hope's status as a theological virtue has been overshadowed by its everyday employment such that we treat it more like a show horse more than a workhorse. Hope unearths beauty and faces tragedy. It celebrates goodness and knows cruelty. It buoys the spirit and steals the spine. This disposition is not a balanced arrangement of these elements, but rather a dynamic and difficult practice of holding them in tension, of being accountable to the resiliency as well as the fragility of life. Such a practice, hope, is a spiritual discipline and an ethical endeavor because it affects character formation and shapes our engagement with the world. Hope is what Shipra and Pua practiced when they faced the fragile life of babies and the Hebrew people and chose to give them new life. It's what Brian Stevenson and his colleagues employ when they see tragedy of unjust convictions by embracing the possibility of beauty and justice in a reverse decision. Hope is what you and I can engage in when we embrace, embrace the possibility of a vision of a church, the PCUSA, and even a church like Valley Presbyterian that seeks to be a base camp building on a more loving world. Because if you've not noticed, the world is not morally neutral. Values like power and promotion of a state grow into wars. Privilege becomes unjust entitlement. Hopelessness spirals into denial of agency, dead ends, and death dealing. Your theme this month, finding a way forward in a time of challenge and possibility, that's midwifing hope. It's seeing the challenge, yes, but making a way out toward possibility, navigating that narrow place, courageously turning the corner, even in the compressed spaces. Why? Because God is about the work of hope and life, and we're loyal to God above all others, right? We each are called by God to midwife hope. Now, I know midwifing is different in 2022 than it was in this ancient story, but I can't not tell you how a gift it was for me to have a conversation with Brandy, a midwife in Owensboro, Kentucky this week. She was a labor and delivery nurse for 11 years before she became a midwife. 
She was concerned about the high rate of C-sections in her county, over 49%. I don't know what it is here, but that seems high to me. It certainly did to her. Most determined, she, she was determined um, because uh, OBGYN physicians would induce pregnancies or perform C-sections for no apparent reason. She was in, the, in there as a labor and delivery nurse, so she became a midwife. In her opinion, the doctors were prioritizing their schedule over the patients. Brandy says the birthing process should not be a patriarchal space like that. That's why partnership with the mother, she told me, is the hallmark of midwifery. Mid the midwife's not really in charge, the mother is. The midwife gives advice, the mother decides. The midwife's on the mother's team, she said. This also means you're on their schedule and not your own. The whole point of being a midwife is to protect the mother first and then the baby. Sure, you need the clinical skills and the knowledge, but more than that, she said, you need the commitment to the safety and respect of these patients. Safety, respect, partnership. That sounds like the work of hope. I read Exodus 1 aloud, out loud to Brandy, and although she is a person of faith, uh, active in the Disciples of Christ Church, she hadn't heard that story in a long time. She loved that the Hebrew mothers, that they were strong. That's the thing she loved about the story most. I asked her if two midwives rather than one meant anything to her. She, she didn't even hesitate. She said, of course, it's a partnership. Because Lee, they're two patients, not just one. You need at least two, maybe more, to do the work. I have to tell you, this is one of my favorite stories. I'd never noticed that. I am a man, I guess. It, we don't do it alone. Her reward, though, and ours, is a C-section rate in her county dropping over 20% in the last six years. And when I spoke to her, she literally took time away from moving her home to another city in Kentucky where the C-sections are at 40% to start navigating the Narrows again. Friends, we've probably navigated narrows before, but it's time to, for us to do it again, and, and we're not doing it alone. We have some hope to do. We have some birthing work before us. It will not probably be on our timelines, but the world is clearly pregnant with possibility, including communities right here, including your own very church, Valley Presbyterian. And there's more than one patient so we're going to need more than one person to help out as partners to navigate these waters, to, to let those waters flow with freedom, deliverance of creation. So that can be born, creation and creativity, justice and truth. So I beg you and I call you and I invite you, tend to the mothers, respect them, the ones who are giving vision to this hope, trust them. Support them. As we sang, it, it actually, it really, truly matters. Matters to us and matters to God. May it be. Amen. Thank you, Lee. You're invited to give to hope, verb and noun.
mostly verb right now as we live into this new time of our church's history and this time in history in our world. And so you're invited to give online or give as you leave today. As I was preparing for this month's uh, series of sermons, I kept listening to this song by Sarah Groves called Why It Matters. So that's how we got to the, the title of this sermon series. And um, because Lee was preaching this morning, I thought I would sing it for you today. I love that this song is actually based on one of my very favorite stories in the world, which is of a man named Vedran Smolivik or something like that. Um, but during the Bosnian War, would go into the bomb craters, and he was a first cellist in the National Orchestra. And he'd sit his chair and his cello down in the middle of these craters and play the same song every day. And it, the report is that in the Ukraine, this is happening now as well. People are going and making music and creating beauty in the midst of bomb craters. And to me, that's such a beautiful picture of hope. So Sarah Groves wrote this song based on that act of hope. And we're going to sing it along with our cellist today. Who's not and first chair. Who's not first chair, <laughs> but is doing a great job. again of the story that's been told us of the power that will hold us of the beauty of the beauty and why it matters speak to me until I understand why our
Would you pray with me? 